This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Larry Allen. Larry is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners um, and a... uh, a long-time government contracts veteran, right, across the Coalition for Government Procurement and um, and your own uh, business. And, you know, and so you've seen a lot, Larry, over the years, as <laughs> as, as several of us have. Um, um, so it's great to have you come back on and talk a little bit about the procurement year 2022. What, what all are your big takeaways take as we look back on uh, 2022. So first of all, welcome to the show, Larry. Thanks for doing it. Roger, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So, well, where do you want to start? I know one thing that you you have um, you know mentioned to me in the past is just the continuing sort of increasing number of, of, of uh, new requirements and contract requirements. And in fact, you, you, I like your phrase, the cavalcade of new government contracts requirements. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw this past year? Sure, Roger. I think it really is a cavalcade. And we go back, it kind of evokes memories of the MGM studios bringing their stars up to talk about what's new and different. Well, what's new and different in government contracting, at least to some extent, is all the new rules that contractors have to abide by. Most recently, that's been the greenhouse gas rule that's currently going through rulemaking. But Roger, as you know, greenhouse gas requirement is already making its way into draft RFPs. So it's something that definitely is coming. Uh, And right uh, next to that, it's not just greenhouse gas emissions that contractors not only have to track and report on, they also have to mitigate uh, and then put together an action plan on mitigation. Uh, carbon footprint, same, same type of thing. You know, what's your carbon footprint? What are you doing to be pro-environment? What are you doing to reduce your carbon footprint? When these uh, ideas were first floated by the administration when they came into power, a lot of people thought that, well, you know, these issues are going to really impact the building industry and only GSA's public building service. But I was always one of those people who saw, well, no, I think it's going to reach out to other contractors, and indeed it is. Also, during this year, Roger, we really saw the first rollout of Section 889 enforcement. Uh, That's been a big issue. Anytime you talk to a government agency uh, as a prospective contractor, one of the first questions they ask is whether you're Section 889 uh, compliant, and that has to do with where you use or do you use banned telecommunications devices anywhere in your infrastructure, whether it's related to a government contract or not. Uh, We've got coming soon for maybe the third year in a row, but it really looks like it's getting here now. And in fact, some companies are going through preliminary CMMC uh, attestation, Roger. So you've got uh, cyber maturity model certification 
uh, that's already here a little bit this year. It's going to be here a lot more next year. Uh, and then in the meantime, we've got a whole host of socioeconomic goals that the government wants to meet, but they also want its contractors to meet in terms of using specific types of small businesses. So all in all, it's been a great irony for me this year that uh, the administration puts out the, the, the call saying we want more small businesses to participate in the government market. Yet at the same time, they're loading up large and small businesses with a host of new government only rules that add to people's overhead and are hard to comply with. Uh, I'm not sure they're going to achieve their goal of attracting a whole bunch of new companies if it's more expensive to do business with the government and more problematic. In fact, I think we may continue to see a net exodus of businesses from this market, at least in part because of the extra requirements that companies don't have to encounter when they're doing commercial business. Right. I don't, you don't, I mean, do you see any, you know, slowing of the momentum of adding these additional requirements, you know, in going into the new, you know, calendar year, or is this just, um, you know, there's, you know, the, you know, just the view that there's a lot of policy that can be implemented through government contracts. Well, uh, I think we're just... going to see it continue, Roger. I really do. I think this is the trend for at least, at least the next year and a half, whether it's, you know, something that has a perceived socioeconomic benefit, whether it's something that's, you know, uh, on the gender front that contractors now have to attest to, you know, that would be something that would come from the social uh the social front, uh, potentially under the government contracting front, and with the administration in power that we have right now, you know they have certainly shown that they are like their predecessors. They're very happy to make use of executive orders to require government contractors to do things that they can't maybe make the wider marketplace do. So, you know, regardless of what it is, if it, there's a whole list of socially conscious uh, things that are out there that uh, haven't quite been implemented into a government contract yet, but could be with an executive order. And I just think we can expect to see those things, in fact, make their way into more contracts over the next, let's say, 12 to 18 months. Uh, all that really means for contractors is if you uh, liked what you saw this year, you're going to see a lot more of it next year. Uh, and you have to be prepared to stand up uh, both reporting and new processes for adapting your business to meet these requirements. Right. So I think you you touched on it, I think is a really good point. And, I, and it's sort of kind of the, I think the lesson that you take out of divided government in particular, whether it's the Obama administration, the Trump administration, or now the Biden administration, all those there's a commonality there that the use of the of executive orders to accomplish policy especially when you have a divided government and you know no one party controls you know the congress and the presidencies um you know so i think that's a great sort of i guess observation with regard to the use of those executive orders and i i think you're correct. We're going to continue to see that um, 
move forward over the year. And that kind of segues to the next topic that I'd like to sort of, because I think it's directly related, and that's sort of the future of the schedules program. You know, the largest government-wide contracting program out there, the largest commercial item, and I put commercial item in quotes, contracting program out there. You know, with with some of this these these things going on, and just the the you know the focus on schedules have been growing. Um, and last fiscal year was about forty billion dollars in sales under the GSA schedules, and another fifteen sixteen under the VA schedules. What what does the future of this get? And we can continue this. We've got about a minute left, but we can continue this discussion into the next segment. But your initial thoughts. Roger, my initial thoughts on the schedules program mirror what you just had to say. Obviously, this program remains popular and perhaps even increased in popularity over the last year. If you've got a program now that altogether is over $56 billion in sales, that's a significant program. It's popular with government. It's popular with industry. I think one of the neat things about the schedules program is that it really makes good use of small business prime contractors with about 30%, if not a little bit more, of schedule orders going specifically to small business primes. And yet, I think some of the things that are happening uh, overall in government contracting may uh, put a, a damper on the schedules program a little bit, not just the schedules program, but all of government acquisition. Okay, well, you know, that's a good tease for the next segment. So when we come back, we can talk a little bit about what what those trends are that could impact the schedules uh, specifically and government contracting more generally. Uh, my guest today is Larry Allen. He is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Larry Allen. Larry is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And uh, this segment, we're going to continue our discussion, uh, which we just started at the end of the last segment on the GSA schedules program. And Larry, you, you're talking about some trends or some issues that will be impacting uh, the schedules program specifically and maybe government contracts generally. So what are, what are you what are you talking about well roger some of that we covered a little bit in the first segment you know some of the pain points that contractors of all stripes are encountering they're encountering on the schedules program as well but particularly within the schedules program you know, you've got the majority the great majority of schedule contract holders are small businesses it's a good small business success story and i mentioned right before we broke that about 30%, maybe a little bit more of all prime contracting dollars go to small businesses. And that's before you count all of the subcontract business that goes to small firms. And yet we have, these are the firms that are least able to uh, assimilate to a slew of new requirements, people who don't have the overhead uh, to be able to track and report and comply with uh, a whole number of these uh, socioeconomic and other environmental things and, and whatever else might be coming down the pike this year. So I think, you know, that was kind of what I was mentioning at the end of the last segment. We have to kind of watch that. Uh, the, the schedules program is a success story, and it's particularly a good success story for good acquisition and for small business use. You don't want to 
put things in that program that are going to jeopardize its success and its ability to not just meet the needs of government, but to uh, do business with a sector that everybody in government agrees needs to see the benefit of government business. But there are good things that are happening in the schedules program too, Roger. I think, you know, as you know, I was late to the transactional data reporting party. I was pretty skeptical about it when it came out, but now I kind of like TDR and always preach a little concern. You know, it's the, my conservative nature, but I think generally TDR has shown itself to be an effective alternative way to get a company on a GSA schedule contract. And if you're looking for new and innovative businesses, you want to look for an innovative way to work with them to get them on that contract. So I think that really works out well. Um, yeah, TDR, yeah, TDR definitely is a, is reducing barriers to entry for, to your point, like innovative capabilities and small businesses because it's more about real-time relevant information of sales under the contract or whatever. And, um, you know, and, and that's much easier, especially for new products than trying to provide, you know, all this, you know, commercial sales information and or that tracking customer uh, for purposes of the price reduction clause, um, you know, that, you know, TDR definitely reduces burdens and is a more efficient and more relevant way to, you know, you know to assess pricing under the program. Uh, is that fair to say? I think that's very fair to say. It's a, you know, efficient, market-based, uh, potentially much quicker, and as you said, easier to, uh, an easier path to add new technologies. And that's what we're all about right now. You know, we want to have a program that can meet the current needs and evolving needs of government customers. As far as the schedules program is concerned, the TDR option is a good way to do that. Right. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit, Roger, before this uh, segment came on about other things that are going right in the schedules program. Uh, GSA acquisition policy did a great job, I think, in uh, trying to address the inflationary impacts on the schedules coming out with two separate statements that collectively were intended, are intended to uh, allow flexibility for companies to achieve price increases so that they don't have to sell at a loss or take items off their schedule contract, which is something that has happened and is a real concern. You want to have a program that makes sense for both government and industry. And to do that, you have to adapt to an inflationary culture that we haven't seen in 40 years. Uh, So I think the acquisition policy gets a pat on the back for doing the best they can The trick, as always, Roger, as you know, is in the implementation. Uh, Even though people are told they can use these new flexibilities, I think there's a large part of the contracting officer core that's a little hesitant, particularly to be the first wave. Right. It's one of those things. Yeah, I think I I would agree wholeheartedly agree with you that, you know, the memos that were put out were an effort to streamline the process. and allow you know contracting officers and contractors to react in a react in a much more timely way to you know the pricing challenges in the marketplace and um you know but the rubber meets the road at the operational level and that's where i think gsa has struggled some i think 
it's slowly getting better um, and their ability to process the mods. And I know they're putting a lot of resources into it and focusing management on it. Um, so I, I think there's progress in that area as well, but, but it's like, you know, turning an ocean liner in some ways, right. You know, all the that different, is. Uh, different contracting officers and that sort of thing. Um, and while, while we're sort of talking about that, you know, the changes in, in that one of the things that did do is, you know, give that decision making authority for increases in, in certain situations directly to the CEO, as opposed to having it go up different levels to get concurrence, you know, a, a level one or two levels above the contracting officer. I think that's a huge opportunity. And the question is, are contracting officers going to be comfortable enough to, you know, grasp that opportunity and move forward and work with business? Uh, I know what, what, you, what the prospects of that are from your perspective, but you can share any thoughts on that. Uh, you know, I think having that uh, authority at the contracting officer level, Roger, is the right thing to do. Contracting officers are the ones who are in charge of determining price reasonableness, whether it's awarding a contract, modifying the contract, what have you. These are the folks that have the warrant, and the government has entrusted them in making those decisions. Uh, the concern that I have is that uh, contracting officers by nature are a cautious group. Uh, and, you know, there are some benefits to that. So, But the, one of the downsides here is acting in a timely manner to provide the relief that is intended to be provided by the policy so that industry partners can continue to thrive on schedule. Uh, you know, I don't, I think the great majority of schedule contract holders are not trying to pull one over on GSA. They are in fact trying to adapt to a marketplace that, uh, no one has really seen, nobody, uh, you know, an adult has really seen unless they're towards the end of their working career. Um, <laughs> you know, some of us, like you and I, grew up with it when we were teenagers, but yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. 1970s, but, yeah. yeah. But, you know, the fact is that, you know, the inflation is real. It's a real impact. Companies are able to demonstrate what that has meant to them in terms of dealing with suppliers and in terms of what they're charging in their commercial business. Uh, the GS, GSA, I think, and the contracting officers need to give full attention to that and understand that this is reality and use the flexibilities they've been given to adjust schedule prices accordingly. Yeah, as, a, as appropriate. And I think the last, last big piece of it is that this is a big small business issue at the end of the day. The, the folks that get hurt by this the most, you know, it's not good for anybody. Right. And, you know, uh, but small businesses in particular, you know, uh, losing out on business or not being able to, you know, sell to the government because uh, they would lose money on an order. That's, you know, you know, that's, that's where GSA can play a huge role in trying to support small business as well. Um, you know, another aspect uh, that that I want to talk to you about about GSA is the you know recently Jeff Kosis, the senior procurement executive, issued a memo on you know management of you know the role of a manager and the just how they can go about in a certain sense managing contract their contracting workforce. Um, you know, it's a significant memo because it 
it rescinded some earlier memos from the FAS commissioner back about uh, five, six, seven years ago uh, that basically, you know, tried to address the role of management and kind of limited the ability of managers to, uh, you know, manage their contracting workforce for lack of a better description. Uh, I think Jeff's memo is a great positive step in the right direction. And when we come back after the break, I'd like to get your take on that as well. My guest today is Larry Allen. He is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Larry Allen. Larry is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners and um, and you know deals a lot with GSA historically over the last two or three decades, right? I don't want to age you, Larry, but uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's getting to be that way, right? For all of us. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the last segment, I mentioned this memo that uh, – Jeff Kosa, senior procurement executive, had issued with regard to sort of the role of management and the acquisition process and even laid out different scenarios and approaches to, you know, the management of contracting officers when you agree or disagree or or whatever um, in certain situations about a transaction. You know, your thoughts on that memo? Roger, I think that memo is an injection of common sense into the schedules program, something that was absolutely needed. Uh, Look, we don't want to have contracting officers uh, be pinged around by everybody uh, on decisions they make on pricing and uh, terms and conditions. Uh, On the other hand, no contracting officer is an island unto themselves. Uh, and we all know that whether it's a GSA schedule contracting officer, DOD, or anybody else, uh, the level of experience varies. The level of familiarity with different contracting practices varies. It's always better, whether you're in contracting or just about anything else, to get other opinions and other people weighing in when there are some questions about what the final decision uh, in a certain matter should be. And that's what this memo from Jeff Kosas really uh, tries to accomplish, reinjecting the ability for contract specialists, contracting officers, branch chiefs, and potentially others to all be able to offer their insights, experience, and expertise when there's a serious question about whether uh, the, a contractor is offering uh, an appropriate price or discount or whether they should be required to uh, sign up for a contract term that they say that they would have real trouble complying with. Uh, you know, the, it better enables a contractor to bring more people into the conversation, not necessarily just to overrule an initial decision, but to make sure that that decision gets a 360 degree view so that People understand what the factors are here, what it means for the contractor, what it means for GSA, and ultimately what's in the best interest of government. So I'm a big uh, fan of this memo, Roger, uh, and hopefully it will enable uh, more types of participation and better reviews uh, on sticky negotiation topics. 
uh, and remove some of the artificiality and hesitancy of people who have tremendous experience from being able to weigh in with that experience. Right. I think, you know, your points, you know, that, you know, the, the contracting officers, you know, for their own benefit, shouldn't be islands unto themselves um, is an important one. And I, I, I want to get your take on this because one of the, you know, I think we think about this, or I know I have, you know, thought about this as a, and I think a lot of people look at it, oh, it's, you know, this is making, this is re-injecting the role of uh, the management vis-a-vis a single contracting officer, right? And addressing, you know, that issue where I think the pendulum, it's, you know, swung too far so that managers really couldn't Im- manage their an individual contracting officer at all that they, you know, they had total discretion on making a decision, whether it was reasonable or unreasonable. But then I think the other benefit of this is that just not thinking it just as one-to-one manager to an individual contracting officer, I think it provides an opportunity to create greater consistency across the program, you know, you know, from a, from a management perspective, right now it's no longer, individual COs each making decisions and they could take the same fact pattern and come up with a 180 degree different solutions or negotiating positions. And that doesn't really make sense in a lot of ways. Right. So one of the benefits potentially here too, could be to try to eliminate the, that kind of lack of consistency across a program. What do you think of that? Well, Roger, I think you're on the right track there. I think we're generally better off having more discussion than less discussion. Uh, This type of interaction where you're bringing potentially more people into a decision-making process allows for better sharing of best practices. You know, people may have an experience in one area that people in another area haven't yet had. And so now we have the ability potentially to share that. When you're talking about consolidating the schedules and trying to get some of the same procedures in place, Fostering improved communication, particularly internally, uh, can go a long way towards helping with that. Right. And the consistency, you know, of expectations is important, I think, for all organizations, whether it's the government or industry. And I think this could could help further foster that. And I wanted to turn to kind of keep on the GSA theme a little bit, Larry. Um, You know, I know this is a big year for uh, GSA that kind of kicked off. Well, it's a big year for GWACs. Why don't we do it that way? So that, you know, GSA and other contra- government-wide contracts, the GSA is kicking off Alliant 3. You know, there's Oasis Plus. There's NASA Soup 6 coming down the pike. And First Industry Day was held for that in November. And then we've got the ongoing saga of NIH COSP4. Um, so what's your take on this is a, this is a, this is a big deal kind of, you know, transition year, it seems to me, and there's going to be a lot going on next year in terms of, um, you know, competition for these IDIQs. Well, Roger, I think you're exactly right. Uh, You know, right now, GSA is in the process of trying to make awards on its small business IT Polaris GWAC. Yep. Uh, You know, they've got some protests they have to clear there, but hopefully they can clear those. That was a procurement that was started this year, the awards will, should be made next year and hopefully get that program up and running next year, uh, particularly before the fourth quarter, so that 
businesses and uh, government customers can take advantage of that. I know a lot of people are looking forward to it. A lot of people are looking forward to Oasis Plus and what that has to offer. It's going to be a very different contract in a lot of ways from the current Oasis contract. As you know, Roger, it's going to have a very broad range to it. Uh, the idea of, uh, that GSA is pursuing is to allow for more contractors of all sizes to participate uh, as a contractor. Uh, and then you shift over to look at, and the draft RFP for that's out, and the draft yeah. RFP for Alliant 3, the IT GWAC uh, is out. So uh, if you're a proposal writer that specializes in doing uh, GSA proposals, 2023 is going to be a good business year for you. You're going to be That's busy. Right. Um, yeah. If you're a contractor, you're going to have a lot of work to do to put one or more of these in place so that you can uh, reap the benefits once they're awarded and underway. So uh, it's a busy time. There's a lot to look at uh, for uh, these contractors in, in, inside GSA. But as you point out, it's not just inside GSA. Uh, Soup 6, of course, has been eagerly anticipated uh, for a little while now, and that's a very popular IT product acquisition method, continues to be popular with government buyers across government. Uh, and, of course, um, NIH, their NITAC organization, is trying to uh, get their CIOSP4 contract out the door. That has been beset by protests throughout its uh, life cycle. Uh, I think what happens with CISP4 and when, Roger, remains somewhat of an open question. Yeah, I think, you know, we're just about up on the break. Um, I think, you know, I think there's going to be more, you know, interest from companies who typically hadn't focused on NASA Soup 6 because of the, you know, the intent to further expand the scope of IT services on the next iteration of it, they've, you know, it's almost historically there's this evolution. Each one of these NASA soup contracts has gotten, you know, the scope has expanded you know, sort of in a methodical sort of measured way. And they're looking at another, um, you know, another expansion. And I've heard from companies who typically haven't focused on that, that they're going to be taking a look at that vehicle moving forward. And then, you know, mentioning NIH, you know, that actually triggers my next topic I want to ask you about and just the role of bid protests and what do they mean for these ID, big IDIQs. But we can tackle that when we come back from the break. Okay, Larry? Sounds good, Roger. Okay. My guest today is Larry Allen. He's a president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf and Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guest today is Larry Allen. He is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And um, when we took the break, we had mentioned NIH, uh, COSP4, and the protest and that sort of thing. And, you know, Larry, the start, big picture question, the role of protest in government procurement, your thoughts on that generally. And then we can tackle, you know, what are, what your perspective on the, you know, impact of bid protests on these big IDIQ contracts? So, Roger, first of all, I think it's important to note that I generally support reasonable protests in government acquisition. I'm not uh, someone who takes a no protest stance 
Uh, I'm not in favor, obviously, of protests that aren't substantiated by anything in reality. Uh, but it's good, I think, as a general tenet of government acquisition to have the ability to protest, make sure that the government is making the right decisions, that in many cases they actually followed their own rules, what they said they were going to do. Uh, I, for all those reasons, I'm generally an advocate for the reasonable use of government contract protests. Uh, I think as they're being applied to IDIQ programs today, uh, it's concerning on two points. Uh, one is that uh, every time an agency tries to put out an IDIQ contract, a multiple award IDIQ, they are met with a fusillade of protests. We'll reach into our dictionary for another word, Roger. Uh, a fusillade of protests that slows things down uh, and can slow things down at both the solicitation phase, uh, the evaluation phase, and the post-award phase. And, you know, that's something that agencies are going to have to really think about. They already think about it to a certain extent and build in time for a reasonable amount of protests. But when you're talking about things like uh, CISP4 and more lately the GSA Polaris program, it's more time. We're on a new, we're on a new plane here, Roger, uh, with new timelines uh, that go with uh, not just the magnitude of protests, but the proclivity, I think, of some parts of the contract bar to protest at the claims court. You know, most contract protests, as you know, are done at GAO. GAO has 100 days to dispose of a protest. In fact, the great majority of them are disposed of well before that 100 days with remedial action by the contracting agency, but they do have that limit on them. Court of Federal Claims really doesn't have that. Uh, and, you know, at the coalition's fall conference, Roger, we heard from a couple of government contract attorneys saying, yeah, we're as comfortable taking protests and other litigation to the Court of Federal Claims as we are to GAO. As our colleague Mark Amtower says, hello, <laughs> Uh, I think that should be a wake-up call to contractors and people in government alike because that claims court process is more formal, more expensive, and more time-consuming. And if you get protests in that area, that can not just slow your program down. I think it could jeopardize it. And in talking to some of the people, Roger, not all, but I've talked to some people in government about protests, they acknowledge them. They don't think they're deal killers today. They still want to maintain IDIQ contracts, which I think are a good thing. But I think we all need to ask ourselves the question is, how many protests are going to start getting acquisition heads and agency heads to say, hey, you know, maybe we'll try another approach? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, thinking, thinking about what you're saying here, that um, – Part of this too is is you know protests are earlier in the process uh, because of the way these IDIQs are now structured, right? You know, remember back in the day, you know, hear people talk about cost technical trade off all that much anymore in these big IDIQs. At least at the contract level, right? It happens at the task order level when you're making you know a, a selection for somebody to perform a requirement. 
But, you know, the, all the challenges and bid protests around cost technical trade-offs and technical and price evaluations and best value kind of created this, you know, the, this, it was a brilliant approach, you know, this sort of score, scorecard, uh, report card kind of uh, evaluation where the companies assess themselves and award themselves the points and they have the underlying documentation. And there's, um, you know, the tables with the points you get for if you have seven experiences or for in a particular area or whatever. So you do the self-scoring and the government essentially validates that. And at the end of the day, you know, that model was to try to mitigate and eliminate those costs, technical best value kind of protest on the, on the overall valuation. So now people are protesting whether, you know, the thresholds or the point right. scoring right. system is fair or not, because that gets into dividing markets as well. Right. When you based on how you do it. And I think it's even more pronounced in the, you know, small business area is particularly yeah. small businesses because the stakes are so high and they see the, how this, how things are structured, you know, they know immediately whether they have the opportunity to compete or not. Um, you know, so, so that's kind of, it seems to me, that's kind of where we are on, on those kind of protests. And I think to your point, it's where do we go from here, especially on the small business arena? Cause that's where you see on the NAH contract, the small business protests, what, at one point they have had a hundred, over a hundred of them, you know, and then Polaris and then the, you know, the predecessor to Polaris, there's lots of protests. And I, I think, you know, that small business, you know, you, how you're dividing the market, uh, uh, you know, that, that comes right to the forefront when you're, when you're dealing with this. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, right. I think you're right. People, uh, particularly small businesses, Roger, do see that, you know, there's a real need. If they don't get on this contract, then how competitive are they going to be with an agency? Uh, and that's a concern for them, particularly if the agency customer is telling them, hey, we're going to use this vehicle. Uh, also, though, I think you know, small businesses, there are different types of small businesses. We can't look at all small businesses the same. Some have more experience in the government market. Some are larger small businesses. There are going to be certain contracts that are going to be good candidates for newer market entries, people that maybe don't have a lot of experience. Maybe they're partnering with another small business for the first time. But there are also going to be contracts that are not meant to be entry-level contracts. And I think CISP4, the NITAC people made a big point about that when they rolled the program out. Uh, and that has to be a message that's heard and accepted by newer market entries or maybe smaller firms that don't quite have the capabilities yet we're seeing a number of protests around them. I think we need to remember, Roger, a few things. One is, statistically speaking, once you get on an IDIQ, small businesses have a great more opportunity to be successful than they do on generic uh, government uh, business. You know, small businesses can do 30, 33, 34% of an IDIQ's total amount of business, that's pretty substantial. And if you're talking 33%, that's 10% more than the government's base small business contracting goal. So IDIQ's generally are better deal for small businesses 
than they are for than an open market acquisition could be. However, if you poison the pot with all the protests and make it uh, a hassle for agencies and tie up their legal resources and whatnot, eventually I think you have to ask the question is whether or not people are just going to put different stuff out for bid and whoever bids on it bids on it and that's what we're going to do. I know that's been a concern of some of the companies that I work with, some of the larger businesses. They want the, the IDIQ contracts to work. I think government customers do as well. So as I said, when we started this discussion, I'm a generally a supporter of protests, but I think you have to understand the best place to use the tool, how to use it and where you might want to let the tool take a rest for a while and let government acquisition go on. Yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the, also the responses that we see now included in most of these big contracts are, um, you know, open seasons or, you know, the ability on ramps, that's the right term on ramps where they periodically open it back up to allow folks who didn't get on it or new entrants in the market to try to get onto that vehicle. But even those, you get in a situation where there's protests on those as well. And I, you know, and, and I think GSA has experienced that. Um, so there's no, you know, what solution is going to solve all of this, um, you know, unless you, you know, unless you do kind of restrict the ability to file protests. And I'm not sure that would uh, be a good thing at the end of the day. Right. It's something that will give you and me and other people in government acquisition an issue to work on for the next little while. Right. Absolutely. So, Larry, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Roger, thank you very much. My guest today has been Larry Allen. He is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.